the British pound hitting an all-time low today against the, the eastern side of Shanghai and this whole swathe of the city uh, has been locked down. Inflation hitting its highest level in, get this, 41 years. The Russian president Vladimir Putin has launched a major military operation against Ukraine. The lowest on record, the highest in decades, extremes in finance. There's been a war, pandemics. It hasn't exactly been a quiet 12 months. Many people will be glad to file 2022 away in the archives, but will 2023 be any better? Here in Britain, we'll have the coronation of King Charles. England might win the Rugby World Cup. And the biggest question of all, will the UK make it through a whole year with just one finance minister? But on international markets, how can investors navigate the year? Over the next half hour or so, you'll hear from Fidelity's leading voices on what they're watching for. I'm Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. With me today are Ilga Haubelt, Head of Equities for Europe, making her Rich Pickings debut. Welcome to you. Steve Ellis, Global Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income, and Victoria Mio, Head of Equity Research for Asia Pacific, on the line from Hong Kong. And thank you all for joining me. Hi. Hi. Uh, now, it's become a tradition in this penultimate podcast of the year that before we look forward, we glance back at the past 12 months. So if you could sum up 2022 in a word, what would it be? Ilga. For me, it's reversal or the old economy strikes back. We've seen, you know, a rotation from growth to value, from asset light to asset heavy and with central banks from whatever it takes to trying to control inflation. Maybe I shouldn't have called it reversal, but slalom. Slalom, I like that. Okay, Steve, what about you? Well, from a fixed income perspective, I think the only word to describe this year has been tricky. Um, you know, we've seen a massive vol shock, uh, of vol shock um, in fixed income. There has been no hiding place as well, other than, I suppose, being long the dollar. Uh, you know, we've seen a combination of rising yields and also spreads as well um, across all sectors, whether it's investment grade, high yield. Um, so it's been a double whammy. It's really taken its toll on uh, fixed income total returns. And I guess it's, um, you know, that's what happens when we move from a period of ultra low interest rates and, and policy accommodation. The bubble of everything has popped, basically. OK, popping bubbles, tricky situation, lots going on. Victoria, what about you? Yeah, I think actually 2023 is going to be the year of upturn. Um, it's going to be a fertile ground for stock picking because 2022 has been a year of market downturn and a very top-down market. But we also think that uh, a lot has been priced in, particularly most of the bad news and uncertainty, and we are seeing a lot of green shoots. Now, um, Ilga, inflation has weighed on markets this year. What impact do you think that's going to have in 2023? Look, first of all, we hope that we'll see peak inflation um, soon. Um, as a result of the aggressive tightening of the central banks. I mean, you mentioned it, right? We've seen the biggest spike in inflation in over 40 years. What we haven't seen fully yet is, and what we have to deal with in 2023, is the impact of inflation on corporate margins and earnings. Um, obviously, inflation hits margins only with a lag due to existing contract supply agreements and, and labor contracts. And so it was in Q3 for the first time 
in the Q3 earnings season that we've seen margins contracting since the pandemic, with the exception of the energy sector, that the energy sector can walk over water at the moment. For 2023, the impact of inflation will be that we have more potential for negative earnings revisions. Labor markets are still tight. And so we haven't seen, from my point of view, the trough in earnings yet. Things will get worse before they get better as margin expectations are still elevated and earnings also still cyclically elevated. Well, thank you, Olga, for that. Now, a little bit earlier, I spoke to Fidelity's head of macroeconomics, Salman Ahmed, and I asked him how he expects those forces to play out. So as we look ahead into 2023, a lot of that financial tightening is already in the pipeline. Uh, we are seeing signs of damage to economic growth happening as a result of it. And we are seeing signs that, you know, maybe we are passing through the peak of inflation. Uh, but what lies ahead in 2023 is what happens to economic growth and the growth cycle itself uh, as this inflation starts to come down as a result of this very significant tightening in, in monetary policy. So what does lie ahead then? You've set the question up yourself. What should we be preparing for? So what we are preparing for is is a recession. As you know, our, our baseline uh, forecast for uh, economic cycles has been, uh, been a hard landing in the US. We already are in a recession in Europe and, 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 and UK where the energy shock has been much more severe. Uh, as this financial tightening passes through the system, uh, we are expecting that U.S. economic growth will start to, to come under significant pressure. So we're in the camp of cyclical recession uh, by middle of 2023. And, and as a result of that cyclical recession, we expect inflation to start, start to come down uh, from these very elevated levels. But that said, from a more medium-term perspective, we think inflation will average higher than we have been used to over the last 15, 20 years. So falling from the levels that we're at at the moment, but it's going to be higher and people need to adjust to that in the way that they consider their borrowing and the way they consider um, returns from, uh, from investments. Precisely. So this is an environment of higher persistent inflation because we think the, the system requires higher inflation uh, to, to, uh, to work out some of the very high debt loads which got accumulated uh, as a result of the COVID shock. Uh, in fact, the most important macro legacy of that shock was very high debt ratios. So if inflation, for example, over the next 10 years runs 100 basis point higher than what has been the case previously, you know, around 8 to 9, 10 uh, or 10 percentage point of debt can be reduced. So that's one channel. The other channel is deglobalization, uh, which is obviously the US-China decoupling being the most obvious example of that. That in itself is inflationary. And then lastly, decarbonization, where energy security has become an important issue. And we think that will also add to further persistent inflationary forces than we have been used to over the last 15, 20 years. Okay. Now, the Federal Reserve has been in the sights of economists like, uh, like you for the past year. Let, let me ask you a festive question. If you were the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, what would be at the top of your Christmas list from Santa Claus? Well, top of the Christmas list would be some supply side, uh, further supply side relaxation in inflation. Because that's the, the kind of uh, positive shock you, you do require uh, in order to make sure that uh, you don't have to tighten policy so significantly to, to invite a very serious downturn. Uh, so uh, that would be the top of the list that, you know, uh, uh, that supply side uh, issues start to, uh, to uh, resolve much more in a faster fashion 
and then obviously labor force participation is the another angle to that which is that you know people start coming back to the labor force and start working i'm not sure santa's had that at the top of anybody's list yet but um, if he's keeping an eye out for it uh, at the north pole that would be helpful and related to that i guess what do you think uh, jerome powell's new year resolution should be what should he be doing differently in 2023 so uh, I think they should learn from uh, the mistake they made last year. Uh, if you recall, we did multiple sessions here uh, uh, questioning the Fed's uh, transitory uh, narrative, which they had to ditch uh, very quickly uh, at the start of the year. Uh, and of course, uh, when you are running a bad policy, then bad luck also happens. So I'm not saying that you know the war was a complete exogenous factor, but there was bad policy uh, uh, in the background. So so I think learning from that lesson will be important. And, and the flip side of that is that they don't get stuck too much into this over tightening and, and then start to uh, increase the risk of a balance sheet recession. Because remember that 15, 20 years of, of very easy policy, negative real rates means that there is a lot of uh, imbalance in the system, uh, which is visible in the very high debt ratios. quick break from me for a moment. Um, Do you have a question that you'd like to put to one of our investment team? For our Christmas special later on this month, I'll be handing the microphone over to you and your fellow listeners. You can send your questions, ideally investment related, to editorial at fil.com. That's editorial at fil.com and send it by Tuesday, December the 13th and we'll put the best questions that we get to our experts. So a brief question to editorial at fil.com and you can see the details in the show notes as well. We are very much looking forward to hearing from you. Steve, uh, Simon was touching there on what might lie ahead for the Federal Reserve. Um, Do you think a pivot is on the cards? Yeah, I think um, I think the Fed will pivot in uh, 2023, and and I guess the you know the Fed have been on a pretty aggressive tightening cycle up until now because if anything they're trying to make up for lost credibility, um, you know, to to try to dampen inflation expectations through this mix of interest rate rises but also balance sheet reduction of 95 billion dollars a month. I think here, here's the crux I think of the issue we're facing next year. So they've moved from a year ago where they were in the transitory camp, they now think that inflation is going to be more permanent and possibly above their 2% target. So they're trying to convince on the one hand, the market that they're going to raise rates, you know, towards 5% or so, and then keep them at those elevated levels for a protracted period of time. And that's one of the reasons why real yields continue to be still very high. Um, and so they've basically swung from one side of the fence, you know, the transitory camp to the permanent um, camp. So the trouble is the market just doesn't believe them. So when you think now we have uh, policy rates at 4%, um, we got uh, just under 100 basis points or so of tightening between now and June 23. Um, so that would take us to 5% Fed funds target rate. Thereafter, the market's already pricing in a pretty aggressive um, rate cutting cycle. So about 70 basis points of cuts priced into Fed funds futures by from the middle of next year to the end of next year. Um, and then there's another 50 basis points or so of cuts in 2024. So the market's saying, yeah, they're going to get to 5%, but then there's going to be a deep recession. Inflation pressures are going to start to subside and they're going to embark on a pretty aggressive rate cutting cycle. Um, and the, the concern that I have, and I'm sure the market will have, 
is that if the Fed dig their heels in and they persist with this monetary tightening and you know trying to convince the market they want this reset the um, their credibility and you know they've already said that they don't want to repeat the, the mistakes of the 1970s the Burns era when the Fed cut rates uh, prematurely that's the problem I think that's the big risk for next year is that the Fed dig their heels in and are stubborn and they don't react to what I think could be a quite a, in a, lot, a deep recessionary environment. Which would then make that deeper and, and longer, I suppose. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and so, that, you know, that's what the, the, the tug of war is going to be, I think, in the next, uh, the next six months or so, is, you know, how will the Fed pivot? Would they just keep policy rates on hold? Actually, I think the other thing, Richard, is that the, the big concern I have is not so much on policy rates, but it's also on the balance sheet as well in that they're reducing the size of the balance sheet by $95 billion a month. If they persist with that, I think that's going to create a huge amount of, of destruction to, um, you know, to monetary aggregates. Already we're seeing money supply growth decelerate extremely sharply, um, and that's going to tighten dollar liquidity and really put some you know, disinflation pressures into the system. So I think the pivot is not just a case of them getting to 5% you know, policy rate and maybe even start cutting in the second half. It's also them recognising the dangers of balance sheet reduction as well. And one of the side effects of this, of their policy, is that um, the dollar has um, has been very strong. You mentioned uh, in your introduction that um, one of the best places to be over the past year would be long dollar, but it's been, you've described it as a wrecking ball for some economies. Um, so d- is that going to carry on into 2023? So uh, that's another, I think that's another key point for markets for next year, is what happens to the dollar, because... I always think if you can get the dollar view right, then everything else falls into place. So that the dollar, the strong dollar this year has been a reflection of a very aggressive Fed. And as you say, it's been a wrecking ball. It's created a huge amount of pressures for emerging market countries who have a large amount of debt denominated in dollars. So the debt servicing costs have been going up. Um, it's been putting pressure on the Hong Kong dollar peg. It's been calling into question um, yield curve control uh, from the Bank of Japan. And I, I've always been of the, of the view that as soon as the, the Fed have finished their aggressive tightening cycle and or pivot, that um, the dollar is going to be extremely vulnerable. And it's vulnerable because of the twin deficit problem. Um, so, you know, who knows whether the dollar already, the dollar's depreciated quite sharply in the last month or so. Whether we've seen the turn already, I don't know. But I suspect that, you know, we're going to see one final bout of dollar strength because, as I said, the dollar liquidity is is you know, falling very sharply. I mean, you know, this is offshore and onshore dollar liquidity. So money supply growth is decelerating at a very alarming rate. And so I, th- I would think that that would, would um, you know, perpetuate some dollar strength from here. But, um, you know, the, the outlook for next year has to be one where I think the dollar is going to be vulnerable. And that's going to be, I think, a very positive for markets. You know, when the dollar, dollar depreciates, it oils the wheels for markets. Oiling the wheels, um, Victor. I could see you um, nodding through um, uh, some of what, uh, what what Steve was saying. Can can you describe then what you expect to happen um, you, from your vantage point in Hong Kong? Mm. We are also expecting that Asia will be able to deal with strong dollar much better than uh, it has in history um, because of the stronger fundamental of many um, countries. Because weaker currency actually help many of the major export economies in Asia to uh, shoulder some of the burdens and benefit the corporate um, margins. And this is a point that has been underappreciated by investors. 
So the countries that are better positions are those that have a high share of US-denominated uh, revenues, particularly where they have some core structure in depreciating local currency. These markets are Australia, Taiwan, uh, Korea, and probably China as well. So strong dollar also tends to favor um, the tourism industry that is in Thailand, uh, in Japan. The worst positions are those that have relatively uh, weaker current accounts and higher inflation level. Um, for example, India and Indonesia. Uh, but these countries uh, have other good things going for them. Um, so we don't see a lot of risk from higher um, U.S. dollar from here on. You definitely are casting a rosy, um, optimistic um, glow in this conversation, Victoria. Um, thank you for that. Um, Ilgo, um, you wanted to come in. Yeah, I mean, it's not only Asia, right, that that um, would benefit from a weakening dollar. I mean, we've, for the first time, the European and UK markets seen outperforming the US in local currencies this year already. And they, I mean, European companies in aggregate generate 55% of their earnings um, outside the euro, um, so in US dollar. So they would also benefit from that tailwind. And from both of you, actually, you know, a lot of volatility over the past year. How do you expect that to, uh, to continue? Victoria first. 2022 has been really volatile because of two things in Asia. One is the zero COVID policy, particularly in China. And then the second is inflation. And we are seeing these have some changes. For example, in China, zero COVID policy has been on the spotlight lately. And we expect that the China government is going to really lose its control measures in the next few months and transitions to a reopening probably by sometime next year, um, you know, at the earliest, the first or second quarter. And they are also changing their approach. And then in terms of inflation, I think we are seeing several uh, green suits um, in improving uh, situations, such as better supply chain uh, situation or, or congestion, uh, and also potentially lower um, energy costs. And Ilga? I'm a bit more cautious than Victoria. I would I would fully agree on, you know, volatility has been driven by the macro and the geopolitical concerns. But I think volatility is here to stay in 2023. Um, Steve has de has described, you know, how, how the market is watching, whether the Fed is pivoting or not. So uncertainty is here to stay. And I think that investors will also want to see, you know, the, the economy clearly bottom um, because of the impact on earnings um, from inflation. So volatility is here to stay, and, and I believe we haven't seen um, the draft yet, neither in earnings nor in multiples. Okay, okay. All right, well, let's move to a different part of the market now. Michael Curtis is Fidelity's head of private credit. And a little bit earlier, I asked him how protected that asset class is from this turbulence that, um, that you're all referring to that's in the wider market. By its very nature, private credit markets tend to be less volatile than public markets, and that's naturally due to the structural features that you have in the market. Number one, generally you have a very long-term holder base rather than daily liquidity uh, that you see in public markets funds traditionally. The other features that you see are um, the, the nature of the asset class very much being focused on senior secured, high-quality assets. 
And again, they tend to be more defensive in periods of market volatility. And in this rising rate environment, the floating nature of much of the assets in the private credit world naturally mean we see less volatility because a lot of the repricing we've seen in equities or you know broader fixed income is very much due to the change in interest rates rather than deterioration of fundamentals although deterioration of fundamentals is is very much a theme that we're looking into right now as we expect potentially lower growth environment even recession into next year you describe the mechanics of how private credit can, can avoid some of the volatility, but it does exist in the real world and economies all over the place are slowing. So what does that mean in terms of downgrades and even defaults over the next year? Right now, we've seen a repricing in the broader financial markets. And you know, just to touch on the volatility point in leverage loans, for example, which is part of our private credit space, we've seen a, a negative return of 4% year to date. And that compares to in high quality investment grade, uh, negative around 15% and slightly higher in high yield. And and as I mentioned, that's very much driven by uh, the changes in rates. Now, part of that is also driven by the expectations of deteriorating fundamentals. And um, right now, we're at some of the lowest default rates on a trailing basis that we've seen in, in recent history. So around 1% default rates on, on a trailing 12-month basis. As we look into next year, some of the rating agencies are predicting, you know, an increase towards 3%. And, uh, you know, I'll quote Fitch, uh, who are predicting 5% in a severe scenario next year. And so we do expect also default rates to pick up, um, but not as materially as um, uh, potentially we've seen in the past. And the reason for that is companies have um, repaired their balance sheets um, during covid They've refinanced uh, capital structures for the most part. So we've seen maturity walls pushed out. And we've also seen um, pretty high liquidity buffers across our universe. Um, so uh, what that means is if, if, we, if we do have periods of constrained cash flow for companies during a recessionary environment, many companies have the liquidity to withstand that uh, for a period of time. And, and then once the market recovers, they can start to build up those liquidity buffers again. Okay, so it's crystal ball time, the slightly impossible task um, I'm going to give you to um, predict where we're going to be in private credit um, a year from now, Michael. Sitting where we are today, um, we've seen valuations adjust significantly during 2022. And um, I think valuations are continue to be, will continue to be volatile over the next several quarters. Um, that said, valuations are pricing in already significant deterioration. And if you take, for example, in leverage loans, the valuations or where you can buy leverage loans today already factors in a default rate higher than during the global financial crisis. Similarly, in structured credit, um, the, the situation is even, even more extreme where valuations are pricing in not just beyond what's in the GFC, but multiple times beyond what we've seen in the GSE. And then looking at um, the direct lending space, right now activity has been uh, pr pretty muted during 2022, but I think M&A activity, particularly in the private to public space where valuations of public markets have come down, it's very interesting for private equity firms to look to purchase some of those companies into 2023, and we think that activity will be re relatively robust. Banks are, are stepping back from financing these buyouts and it allows private funds to step in who can take a longer term view provide more certainty but importantly with that attract 
higher margins, lower leverage structures or better protected structures and overall better terms. So for us, it's a, it's a pretty interesting investment environment going into 2023. Michael Curtis speaking to me earlier. Now, um, Victoria, let's let's talk about China because um, it's on a different pathway to the rest of the world. Um, we've already touched on the zero COVID policy. Um, last year on that COVID theme, we were talking about China being first in and first out. But what do you think are going to be the themes of 2023? Next year, the theme will be in addition to, you know, first in, first out, it is going to be full reopening uh, of um, the, the economy uh, and getting out of COVID. With that, our first theme is to invest in reopening beneficiaries such as airlines, airports, duty frees, and consumer services. The second theme is on higher manufacturing. Uh, given the current you know, property policy that we have seen, it is very clear that China is diversifying away uh, from the property sector and nurtured new um, drivers such as higher manufacturing, semiconductors, um, and EV. So over time, this will have a lot of investment opportunity. And the third theme is carbon net zero opportunities. We are very positive on many of the green sectors such as wind, solar, EV, and we think that the whole supply chain from upstream raw materials to midstream equipment to downstream operators will all benefit from this uh, uh, you know, net zero target and energy transition plan. Okay, and um, Ilga, a lot of the things that uh, you know that, that Victoria was um, uh, talking about there, when you think about you know the energy transition, we've been through a pandemic. That there's an awful lot going on in the world. Do you think that some of the structural changes that we've you know we've had to adapt um, to over the past year or two, what what chances are there that they become entrenched, that they become the new normal, if you like? I mean, I would fully agree that you know my my thought is that. The next 10 years will look very differently from what the last 10 years looked, right? We've seen this transition from asset light to asset heavy, and that's obviously driven by these trends. And apart from the trends, you know, that we see in the transition space, deglobalization is obviously a really, really big topic, given, you know, the increased geopolitical uncertainty that's here to, to stay, supply chain disruptions. I mean, it's a career risk for CEOs not to address that and to friend on nearshore supply chains. And even there is ESG a driver, right? If you think about, we discuss with the companies, they're net zero targets. I mean, bringing supply chains closer to home is, is clearly something that helps with reducing your carbon emissions. What I would hope though, so we have different um, structural drivers um, going forward for the next 10 years than we have looking backward. What I would still hope is that we get a bit more balance in the market so that, you know, you can invest on the one hand in, in what Victoria mentioned, you know, the, the companies that structurally benefit from this um, transition, but also the companies um, that enable it from a CapEx point of view. Okay, lovely. Right, well, we're sort of reaching the end of this discussion we've we've done a, a circumnavigation of um, a lot of um, big themes a lot of the things that have caused us um, problems over the past year as well as um, some of the um, less uh, difficult things but what gives you hope in 2023 and Steve I'm going to come to you first on this um, where, where do you see the green shoots well uh, I think um, the, the green shoot has to come from uh, the Fed pivoting uh, you know, as we get closer to the end of the tightening cycle, um, you know, that's going to 
provide some relief for markets. And, and like I said, I think we're going to see a weaker dollar as a result of that. Um, I think I think the the upside, if you like, for 2023 is that, you know, the dust is now the dust is settling. Um, we're left with some pretty attractive valuations in fixed income and, you know, particularly in, I think, investment grade, um, you know, whether it's global ag, whether it's euro investment grade, dollar bond. Yeah, this the spread percentiles there are at very attractive levels. I think you know spreads are at you know the seventieth percentile in euro investment grade, for example. So valuations are looking pretty good. All in yields looking pretty good as well. So I think from that point of view, it's good. I think the the downside, if you like, is that I don't think recession risks have still been sufficiently priced into some parts of the market, um, meaning high yield, where you know you look at dollar high yield, where spreads are four hundred and sixty basis points. So you just you don't get protection um, from you know, a pretty deep recession if we get one in the US. So I think the green shoots are all in investment grade when you look at fixed income. Thank you. Victoria, in Asia, um, choose choose one green shoot, a bamboo shoot, if you like, of some sort that um, uh, you would um, you would highlight for us. Mm. Yeah, geopolitical tension has been the most volatile and uncertain factors uh, in 2022, as I mentioned earlier. And recently, during the G20 summit, we noticed that global leaders have been taking a more pragmatic approach to managing the geopolitical tension. Um, for example, U.S.-China, Europe-China relationship has seen some positive development. So I think this is one of the most important green suits. Mm. And that was the face-to-face -face, um, uh, conversations that, uh, that make a big difference, don't they? As we've all found after a few years of Zoom and then mixing it with in-person. Um, Ilga, um, how about you? Where are your green shoots for 2023? I'll keep it very simple. I hope that we go back to fundamentals, right? From a macro-driven market to a stock picker's market, because that's where our strengths lie and also from a liquidity-driven market to a more earnings-focused market because in the past, you know, earnings drove a lot more from total returns because that selfishly would play into our strengths. Splendid. All right, thank you very much indeed. We're nearly out of time, but not before we play the Rich Pickings parlour game, hot cakes and hot potatoes, but this month with a crystal ball twist. Um, that sounds like icing, I don't know. So what would you buy like a hot cake and drop like a hot potato with your crystal ball twist for 2023. So what's your your main picks um, of uh, things you would buy, things you would sell um, over looking at the course of the whole year? Um, Ilga, let me come to you first on this one. I'd be brave. I would still um, sell long duration stocks, to be honest, with weak fundamentals, because I think it takes more, you know, just declining rates will not bail, um, you know, these, these stocks out. I think they need to have um, safe, fun, um, solid fundamentals as well. And on the hot cakes, I would still, you know, put, um, I would still bet on um, income stocks, given that we have overall lower return expectations. And, you know, income will make up a bit of, bigger percentage of the total return. Thank you very much. Um, Victoria, you've got all of Asia um, as your playground. So um, what are your hot cakes and what are your hot potatoes for the coming year? Hotcakes will be the China reopening place. Uh, right now, um, it has been one of the most uncertain uh, areas, and there are actually a lot of ways to play that. You know, the key is, do you pick the right one at the right price? Uh, because a lot of them may already go up, but then it has you know, a very overarching influence on many sectors. 
Um, and then the hot potato that I will drop is the traditional energies like oil and gas and coal, because they have been doing really well because in Asia, uh, a lot of reliance on uh, traditional energy and therefore the prices have been going up, earnings has been going up, but then it's time to sell. Excellent. And finally, Steve, your hotcakes and potatoes. Yeah, so my, my hotcake uh, for next year, I think, as I said, I think anything sort of investment grade related. So that would be global bond, uh, your investment grade, dollar bond. So those parts of the market where you do get some, you know, accessories premium, if you like, for um, any potential recession risks. Hot potato. Mm. So last year, if you remember, my hot potato was Bitcoin. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to stick with that this year as well. I, just, I, <laughs> I, I think it's still uh, you know, very vulnerable here as well. And of course, my other um, hot potato is, is the dollar. I think the dollar is going to be under significant pressure in the next few years or so. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much indeed to, um, to all of you. That's all the time uh, we have for this month. Thanks to Ilga, Victoria and Steve for joining me and to Salman Ahmed and Michael Curtis and, of course, to you for listening. You can read Fidelity's 2023 outlook in full at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Remember, please do send us your questions to put to our investment team for the next recording. Details of how to get in touch are in the show notes. We're very much looking forward to hearing from you. The producer today was Holly Eastman with production support from Connor Bailey. But for now, from all of us at Fidelity and until next time... Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.